Hello, everyone. This is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, and I am your host, Alex Painter. I sincerely hope that everyone has stayed safe and healthy over the past few weeks as we deal with this epidemic on a global scale, this coronavirus. Thank you for electing to join me for this episode, the 19th in our chronology of the University of Notre Dame, its football team, and its fascinating history and people associated. I know there's been a lot of uncertainty and perhaps even emotional and mental anguish over the past month. So I hope through this episode, uh, this might sound cheeky, but perhaps a sense of normalcy, even for the next just 45 minutes, can be achieved. So this episode is a really cool one, I think. And I think the Onward to Victory audience in particular will enjoy it. So, but let's tackle some housekeeping first. So first, this is episode 19, but if you go back and listen to the first 18 episodes, I did a little bit of quick math. You have about 12 hours of original content, about 39 minutes per episode. So if you do find yourself with a little bit of extra time on your hands, please feel free to go back and listen to the catalog or any selection you'd like. There's some really, really interesting ones. And I'm proud to say that the podcast has reached people now from 35 different states and 12 different countries. And I've done a bit of redecorating of my recording space here. So I'll share a picture on Facebook and please let me know what you think. A special thank you to the show's fourth consensus All-American, Brad G. of Williamsburg, Indiana, for sponsoring this episode. As I mentioned a couple episodes ago, Brad is the Elmer Layden of the show, so to speak, who is Notre Dame's fourth consensus All-American and the third after George Gipp. Layden was no slouch, as he was a member of the legendary Four Horsemen and actually later coached the Irish for several seasons. So thank you to Brad, the Elmer Layden of the Onward to Victory podcast. Uh, Also special thanks to Rob D. of Fort Wayne, Indiana, who is also sponsoring this episode. So he actually is the fifth consensus All-American here uh, for the Onward to Victory podcast. And being the fifth one will make you Jimmy Crawley, another member of the legendary Four Horsemen, also an All-American back in 1924, 96 short years ago. So again, thanks to both of these guys, and I will talk about the Consensus All-American program here in a minute. So I hope you had an opportunity to listen to the last episode, The Patriarch of Tight End U, the story of Irish tight end Jim Mutchler. Awesome story about an unheralded Notre Dame football player of the 1940s and 50s. And I did receive some feedback about how I may have been a bit generous, perhaps, with this title of Patriarch of the Position particularly since he did overlap with end Leon Hart at Notre Dame, who was much larger in stature, kind of more resembling a modern tight end. And of course, Hart won the 1949 Heisman Trophy. Now, though I explained it a bit in the actual episode, allow me to extrapolate my thoughts here for just a second. So first, take out the Heisman and the fact that Hart was more modern-day prototypical tight end size. Uh, Mutchler caught more passes at Notre Dame and in the NFL ranks than Hart. And this is in no way a slight to Hart, who was Notre Dame's third Heisman Trophy winner of the decade. 
but half of his offensive touches his senior season came in the backfield as fullback, so that was considered. And Mutchler was known as a devastatingly ferocious blocker on the line, truly excelling at what the other main cog of the position entails. But again, just on the receiving end, he became an excellent red zone target, another defining characteristic of the tight end, finishing in the top five and receiving touchdowns five of his eight professional seasons. So at Notre Dame, he left the program with both the single season and career reception record. So also, just kind of from a bird's eye view, I don't think his story is, is as accessible as Hart's. Obviously, since Hart's won a Heisman, he's been detailed fairly heavily. So I went with Mutchler. But, uh, but anywho, so as you'll probably note, this is the third episode of the month. So Jeff Harrell's interview that him and I did, or the conversation, I should say, came out on March 2nd. And then the Jim Mutchler episode did just come out on March 12th. And so this episode, of course, marks the third one this month. And so um, it's for this show, you know, which again, takes a long time to put these episodes together. This might even be considered a torrid pace. And that's really because, honestly, I, I don't know what to do about kind of what's going on in the world today. And so maybe just on a small micro scale, my part is to produce some things for people to listen to and give people something to do while they maybe can take their mind off of what's going around around the globe, hopefully you know, not in their home communities, but I guess statistically the chances are good that it probably is affecting your home community. So we're all in this together. Let's, let's hang tough and see this one out. And just so you know, I'm not getting paid more to produce more content more quickly. Um, in fact, I'm not getting paid at all. I do this because it's something I'm passionate about. All of the funds I receive for the show go directly back into the show. But uh, just so you know, I, I'm really dedicating myself to try to, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, produce content uh, for y'all to listen to, hopefully to return you to some, uh, at least mentally or emotionally, perhaps a little bit more of an even-keeled space. So I hope, I hope you're enjoying these. And as I said, I, I, by choice, as I mentioned in the first episode, I'll never be the, the Notre Dame person or the Notre Dame outlet you follow that produces the most content. But hopefully you realize that uh, this is something that I do put a lot of care and a lot of uh, a lot of mind to, and so uh, hopefully you are you are enjoying them. And as a just a friendly reminder, if you dig the show, you can find us find me on Apple Podcasts. So if you have an iPhone, it's the purple icon. Spotify as well as Podbean at onwardtovictory.podbean.com. So like, subscribe, do whatever you got to do to make sure you're getting all the new episodes. Interact with the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash onwardtovictory. Feel free to send the show an email at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. So if you'd like to name yourself to the Onward to Victory Consensus All-American Squad, you can do so very simply, just as Rob and Brad have done. A $10 donation to the show will sponsor an episode and get your name called out as a consensus All-American over the air. So you can donate at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation. Or if you want to donate a certain amount per month, visit patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Any support is greatly appreciated. So Thank you. And as always, thank you to Joseph Rakish, who allows the show to use his song called Knut Rockney as the theme. You can find it on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube, pretty much wherever you listen to music. So go give it a spin. 
Before we launch into the program, please consider supporting the Notre Dame Football Heritage Project. Again, I'm not a compensated endorser by any means, but I am a big fan of this idea and this initiative. It was founded by Len Clark, a professional of journalism, who has taught at a number of universities, including Notre Dame. So according to the website, the Notre Dame Football Heritage Project is a database that lists the name, hometown, year, and opponent of a fan's first Notre Dame football game. The project's goal is to tell the Notre Dame football game day experience through the sharing of stories, pictures, and videos. And you get this amazingly cool certificate to commemorate your first Notre Dame game. I actually just ordered one for my son, Grayson, uh, who went to his first game last season. And some of you may remember he appeared on an episode of the show last year ahead of the game. But the certificate looks really awesome in a frame, and Grayson has already... Uh, hung it very proudly on his wall. And so I'll make sure that I share the link for this project, but also share the actual certificate. But needless to say, after getting Grayson's, I will be getting one for myself. And um, again, probably share some of our pictures and memories to the database. So jump over and visit mysportsheritage.com for more information and to see a sample of the certificate. And it's only $10 and it's worth every penny. So this is episode 19. So per show tradition, let's assign the episode a representative who wore number 19 for the Irish. So last episode was the first time a kicker was represented in an episode when John Carney represented episode number 18 because he wore number 18 at Notre Dame. And I believe this will not only be the second, but the second consecutive episode that will be represented by a kicker because this one has to belong to Justin Yoon, kicker for the Irish from 2015 through 2018. Why does this one have to belong to Yoon? Well, no one in Irish history has scored more points, kicked more extra points, or field goals. And he was a super easy guy to root for. So this one belongs to Justin Yoon. Episode 19, the Justin Yoon episode. So I am preparing myself for Jeff Harrell's Rockney of Ages book by reading up on as much about Coach Knut Rockney as I can. Uh, the 89th anniversary of Rockney's passing is quickly approaching, so I figured it may also be appropriate to do a Rockney episode as well. Anyways, in doing so, I pulled out Michael R. Steele's 1988 pictography called Knut Rockney, A Portrait of a Notre Dame Legend, off my shelf. And about halfway through, there is a rather famous photograph of Rockney and baseball legend, Babe Ruth. So if you Google it, you'll find the image very quickly. But we see cross-promoting between sports all the time now. This is very, very common. But in the 1920s, this was a bit more of a rarity. Now, these two are among the biggest sportsmen in the, of the decade. So it's not a stretch that, of course, they would know each other. But... I want to know who was pulling the strings on this encounter. Basically, what's the scoop here? Well, without further ado, I give you Rock and the Babe, the collision of sports' earliest superstars, right after this. Alright, and before we begin, a quick note on sources. So for this particular research project, for lack of a better term, I used the aforementioned Michael R. Steele work, Knut Rockney. 
A Portrait of a Notre Dame Legend, again published in 1988. In addition, Jane Levy wrote an excellent award-winning biography on Babe Ruth titled Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created back in 2018. I'm reading it now, actually, and it's magnificent, to say the least. If you're a baseball fan, it's a must-read if you haven't read it already. Uh, a show favorite in Murray Sperber's Shake Down the Thunder, the creation of Notre Dame football, was also used. It doesn't get much better than this as far as chronologies of early Irish football is concerned. So in order to put our subjects on a crash course, let's start at the beginning with our first subject, on the other side of the pond. In a small Norwegian town called Voss, Knut Rockne was born on March 4, 1888, to Lars and Martha, his parents. He was one of three children in the family, with two sisters. His father Lars was a smith and carriage maker by trade, and had a sterling reputation for the quality of his craftsmanship. In fact, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany was a customer of Lars. In 1893, when Rockne was just five years old, his family, having spent several generations in Vos, immigrated to the United States, landing in Chicago in 1893. Despite what the future would hold, Rockne's parents detested football. This sentiment actually stemmed from an incident when young Canute came home fresh off a neighborhood game of football on the sandlot with the other immigrant children in the neighborhood. With several bumps and bruises present on the youngster, and his clothes now in tatters, Lars and Martha declared that Knut's football career was over. And really, who could blame them? Football at the turn of the 20th century was, needless to say, much different than the game we see now, particularly from a stylistic viewpoint. The game, according to Steele, quote, resulted in disfigured faces, broken bones, paralysis, and even death. The game's equipment was minimal and primitive. Macho attitudes prevailed. Bulk was not unwelcome. And tactics were designed to bring down tremendous weight and momentum to bear on a small point, often the poor lout with the ball. The game featured kicking, some basic running plays, and brutal tackling. Finesse was unheard of." End quote. By the time Rockne enrolled at Northwest Division High School in Chicago, he had finally convinced his parents to allow him to play football full-time. Luckily for the young Rockne, he was a quick runner and was always forward-thinking on ways to advance the ball with minimal damage to the ball carrier. This was due to two Rockne facets that were inherent to him. First, he was quick and fast because he was fairly small, only about 5 foot 3 and 110 pounds when he entered high school. He couldn't take being on the bottom of the dog pile for too terribly long. And he was very intelligent and had a scientific mind. Many of you may know that he would go on to study chemistry at Notre Dame and even teach it. After leaving high school without actually having graduated, thanks to a denied request to transfer, Rockney worked at a Chicago post office for four years. Having saved enough by age 22, he enrolled at a small college in northern Indiana in the fall of 1910, Notre Dame. Despite not being Catholic, Irish, or even a high school graduate, 
Rockne himself found a quick home at Notre Dame, both in the classroom and the gridiron. At the time, Notre Dame was a male-only college of about 400 students. Rockne excelled on the football field, actually being named captain of the legendary 7-0-1913 squad. With Rockne at end and Gus DeRay under center at quarterback, the team was among the first to truly revolutionize the forward pass, using it to their full advantage in a 35-13 skunking of the vaunted and heavily favored Army squad. Between 1914 and 1917, Rockne was an assistant coach for Notre Dame until taking over the reins as head coach in 1918. And with that, let's switch gears for a moment. Let's look at subject two, George Herman Ruth. Whereas Rockne came from a decidedly working class family, the Ruths were definitely, let's say again, from the other side of the tracks. George Herman Ruth was born on February 6, 1895 in Baltimore, Maryland, to parents Katie and George Sr. George Sr. worked a series of jobs, including a stint as a lightning rod salesman. Imagine that. Of the seven children in the Ruth family, only George and a sister survived infancy. It is likely that multiple children in the Ruth family perished from malnourishment or emaciation. The Ruth family was not a happy one, and George was raised in a tumultuous household between marital disputes, his father's heavy hand, and the deaths of family members. Though Ruth has garnered a reputation as an extremely troubled child, biographer Levy refutes this to a degree. But regardless, young George was sent to the St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys in 1902 at age seven. The institution served as both an orphanage and a reform school or a reform school for children. So it was at the reform school that he picked up baseball. And he also began to grow in what would become an incredibly powerful frame. As most people may be aware, Ruth would break into the professional ranks originally as a pitcher, but he was a catcher while starring for the St. Mary's teams. It was pretty clear early on that the young Ruth was exemplary in every phase of the game. His features were enormous. Again, according to Levy's biography, Ruth's thumb at the knuckle was the width of an unshelled walnut. She wrote that, quote, his fingers were huge, which explains, in part, his ability to both control a major league baseball thrown from 60 feet 6 inches and to wallop one with a 54-ounce bat, end quote. Just for some context, MLB bats today are between typically 33 and 36 ounces. Ruth was signed by the local minor league Baltimore Orioles in 1914, again as a pitcher. Just to connect our narratives here, Ruth was first signed to professional baseball the same year that Rockne began his coaching career at Notre Dame as an assistant under head coach Jesse Harper. So anyways, the 19-year-old Ruth would throw for both the Orioles and the Providence Grays that season compiling a 20-8 and 8 
record. The Boston Red Sox, so impressed with the pitching prospect Ruth, purchased his contract by season's end. And the teenage Ruth started three major league games that first professional season, and he won two of them. The next three seasons, 1915 through 1917, Ruth was dominant on the mound, winning an average of 22 games per season. His earned run average was among the lowest in the league. In 1918, the same year Rockney took over as head coach of the Notre Dame football squad, Ruth successfully lobbied to become a part-time pitcher and a part-time outfielder to give him more opportunities to come up to the plate. Though he only started in the outfield for 59 total games that season, he led the league with 11 home runs. 11. Now, for those of you who are students of baseball history, you know 11 was quite a number during this time, known as the dead ball era. The parks were huge, resulting in few balls actually going over the fence, and sometimes the same ball would actually stay in play during the entire game, resulting in overuse. Pitchers were allowed to tamper with the ball as well, spitting on it or rubbing it down with grass or tobacco, whatever have you. Small ball tactics such as bunting, stealing, the hit and run were favored to the home run. Speed over power, essentially. Between 1919 and 1920, both Rock and the Babe launched into the elite of their sports. During those two seasons, Rockney's Notre Dame teams went a perfect 18-0. Get this, outscoring their competition 480-91 to over that span. Of course, this was during the time that the Irish were led in both rushing and passing both years by a fellow you may have heard of, George Gipp. Ruth was traded to the New York Yankees in 1920 and became a full-time outfielder. He rewarded the Yankees by clubbing 54 home runs that season. 54 is a lot now, and Ruth had hit 29 the year before, which also led the league. But before that, the highest single-season home run total in baseball history had been 27, hit in 1884 by Ned Williamson of the Chicago White Stockings. The Babe literally out-homered most of the teams in Major League Baseball that year by himself. On the football side, Rockney was an incredible innovator as well. He utilized his skill position players to deadly precision by way of his variation of the single wing formation, dubbed the Notre Dame Box. Rockney's innovations with this formation involved using complex backfield shifts and motion to confuse defenses, or quickly adapting it to use as a passing formation. This formation was effectively used by the four horsemen of Notre Dame. Anyways, you, you probably have a good sense with how the story continues. Ruth completely reinvents the game of baseball with the exciting home run. And his swing was so powerful. In fact, some people more fondly remembered his swing and misses more than his long drive, as he had a propensity to throw his entire body into a swing, which, if he missed, would nearly throw him off balance and induce an audible gasp from the crowd. During the decade of the 1920s, Ruth hit nearly 500 home runs. 
between 1920 and 1926, Rockne's teams only lost six football games. His teams were named or laid claim to multiple national championships. By the mid to late 1920s, both men were so famous that they had enlisted the help of Walter Christie, or just Christie, Walsh, a precursor to both a publicist and a sports agent to help them handle their affairs. In nearly all respects, Walsh was the first modern sports agent in America, and he helped the duo secure lucrative endorsement deals. And as a pleasant bonus, he was a former columnist in the newspaper industry, so he could help his clients control the narratives, so to speak, in the press. Truthfully, enlisting the help of a professional in this manner only made Ruth and Rockney all the more innovative, as well as far-reaching and influential. Seriously, the level of these two men's fame, particularly Ruth's in the 1920s, cannot be understated. Now, the quote I'm about to read you was about Ruth, but if you change a few of the words, it could just as easily be about Coach Knute Rockney. So this was in an introduction at the Library of Congress as Jane Levy, uh, the, again, the biographer of the New Babe Ruth biography. This was kind of part of the introduction while they were introducing her. So it was said that Babe Ruth represented a, quote, perfect storm. He was the coming together of the best player with the biggest personality on the best team on the largest stage in the country's most popular sport during an explosion of media possibilities. No one has ever occupied that unique intersection in American life, end quote. So again, change a few words and that quote could just as easily be applied in many respects to Coach Knut Rockney. But in 1926, within the sporting world, which fits snugly among the culture of the Roaring Twenties in America, Rockney and Ruth may have been the most famous men in America, if Q rating or Q score was calculated then. On September 23, 1926, on the first of two consecutive off days for the Yankees, Ruth made a trip out to South Bend, planned by Walsh, and visited the Irish at practice on Cartier Field. Again, this is before Notre Dame Stadium was built a few years later. At the time, the football season didn't traditionally begin until much later in the year, so the Irish had yet to play their first game. So the two sports titans first met, or at least first met with someone with a camera nearby, but someone snapped a picture of the two together. The babe was in football pads and rock in his traditional suit and fedora, both examining a football. And the photograph was later inscribed by Ruth, quote, I said to Canute, I'd like to hit against a ball like that, end quote. <laughs> this represents the first of two images used in the episode's placard. So as I mentioned earlier, cross-promotion between sports was fairly uncommon during this time. And really, that's because there weren't a ton of marketable sports stars. But obviously, Walsh had clients in multiple sports, so he used them to actually leverage each other. So for instance, when Babe Ruth's name was attached to a workout system, which is kind of humorous when you stop and think about the off-season habits of Ruth, Rockney's name and endorsement was slapped on the front of it. The following year, 1927, the New York Yankees are in the midst of their famous murderer's row season, 
which would see Ruth hit 60 home runs, a record that would stand for decades. And he was joined by a young slugging teammate, Lou Gehrig, who was in just his second full professional season. And Lou Gehrig would famously play in over 2,100 consecutive ballgames. And his name would also become synonymous with the disease of the nervous system that would prove fatal to him 14 years later. But they ultimately swept the Pittsburgh Pirates in the World Series and were champions. Rockney and Notre Dame themselves were in the midst of quite a season, one that they would retroactively claim at least a share of the national championship. In college football, there were few teams more popular than Notre Dame and their primary rival, the Trojans of the University of Southern California. Their November 26, 1927 game, the final game of the season, was actually moved to Soldier Field in Chicago, a stadium that could meet the ticket demand for the game. And of course, it's where the Chicago Bears still play. Ruth and Gehrig were VIPs at the weekend's event. And the only reason they were even present in Chicago that weekend was that a deal with a motion picture company that Walsh had brokered had actually gone south. So the trio diverted and went to Chicago instead. So to play up the occasion and the rivalry, Walsh put Babe in Notre Dame garb and Gehrig in USC regalia for the pregame banquet at the swanky Palmer House Hotel. So a photograph was snapped of the occasion, and again, that one serves as the second featured photograph in the episode placard, and can be found in exceedingly simple fashion on the internet as well. So if you look closely, you can see where Babe's pants actually wouldn't fully tighten around his enormous waist, a problem that the, let's say, slimmer, Gehrig did not find himself in the same situation. So Ruth addressed the crowd, which included Coach Rockney, Tad Jones, Pop Warner, the quote creme de la creme of American football writers, assembled fans, and boosters. So this comes from page 294 of Levy's biography. Quote, It's a pleasure and inspiration, he, being Ruth, boomed into the microphone, to have a fellow like Gehrig as a runner-up in the home run race. Lou's a great first baseman, and he protects his father and mother. Encouraged by a vociferous round of applause, Ruth plunged ahead, praising Gehrig's pleasant smile and his qualities as a son and roommate, while Gehrig looked on sheepishly in his USC uniform. He doesn't snore, and he could sleep on a meat hook, and he protects his mother and father. Someone pulled on the sleeve of his jersey and whispered, You said that once. Lay off, he barked, and the microphone caught it. I'm making this speech. Nobody read that story in the morning paper. Again, that was Levy, page 294. Notre Dame actually won that game 7-6, to six, thanks to an amazing touchdown catch by Bucky Dahman. Nearly 120,000 spectators, including Ruth, Gehrig, and Walsh, were present. Rockney's Irish would be crowned national champions in 1929 and 1930. Rockney, of course, was killed in a plane crash on March 31, 1931. Babe retired from baseball with 714 home runs, seven World Series titles, and he was one of five baseball players in the inaugural Hall of Fame class in 1936. 
Christy Walsh, the man who represented both men, never got over the death of Rockney, according to Levy. Though even Rockney insisted that the future of travel was in the air, after Rockney's plane crash, Walsh didn't jump on an airplane for 17 years, and only did so so that way he could see his old friend before he died in 1948. Yep, you guessed it, Babe Ruth. Rockin' the Babe, the collision of sports' earliest superstars, and we will be right back. Boy, studying those two guys is, is very interesting because they are just cloaked in legend. And honestly, sometimes it's really refreshing to kind of cut through and just kind of see them for what they are. And not to mention, kind of juxtapose their journeys to fame and stack them right next to each other and kind of find that point where they intersect and why they intersected. And it's just... Yeah, like I said, it, both men are much more nuanced than I think a lot of people realize. And honestly, I'm reading Levy's book. Uh, again, it's called Big Fella. I can't recommend it enough. It's really good. I think it won the Society of American Baseball Research Book of the Year back in 20, 2019 award, but it was released in 2018. But the upbringing of Babe Ruth is heartbreaking. It, it really, really is. And... I think a lot of people assumed, because I think a lot of people who follow him fairly closely understand that he, you know, spent much of his childhood in a reform school, but the the tumult that his family suffered, and again, just death was something that the babe, uh, that well, I should say young George, was just very accustomed to, and burying his siblings was something that he was, I hate to say it, was used to. And a heartbreaking detail that is shared in the book is that, you know, the family just hardly has two nickels to rub together. So these small caskets of these young Ruth children who, again, mostly died because of malnourishment or, you know, bad milk or whatever have you, they actually were stacked on top of each other because the plot wasn't big enough. And my goodness, to think that the, the caskets and the coffins of these children pretty much died of poverty, were stacked on top of each other. I think that's a detail that you otherwise don't think of when you think of the larger-than-life Babe Ruth. And to me, when you think about that the Babe, in the 1920s in particular, kind of really represented excess in a lot of ways, and he would just legendarily eat and drink so much and then you know go out and slug a couple home runs he did everything big and it's really interesting to think that he came from such a humble background and really it's not a surprise when you think about it like that and switching over to the rock man i tell you this much i am super super excited to read jeff harrell's new book rockney of ages I've talked about it a lot on the show as it's probably at reach point of ad nauseum uh, or critical mass, but be really excited about this because Rockney is definitely one of those guys and Jeff, Jeff kind of relayed this to us. Rockney's treated a bit like a relic 
And so it's good to get fresh perspective on him. But yes, gang, I am really sorry. I didn't mean to kind of delve into the very sad part of Babe Ruth's upbringing, especially kind of the somber mood that the country's kind of in given the, the health crisis. Wasn't my intention uh, by any stretch, obviously. But, you know, as and I've kind of said on the show, history, more oftentimes than not, is kind of grimy. It's kind of dirty and it's kind of sad and gut-wrenching and... It's also very uplifting, and sometimes it'll fill you with jubilation, but you got to take the good with the bad, and it uh, they both inform each other, and that's how you get a clear picture. So speaking of rock, I really wanted to do something that I haven't done in a few shows, and that's the George Gipp Minute. That, of course, never is a minute because, well, the host loves George Gipp, but... But the George Gipp Minute does relay an interesting anecdote of Notre Dame's first consensus All-American George Gipp's life. So this particular anecdote, as they mostly all do, comes from The Gipper. George Gipp, Knut Rockne, and the Dramatic Rise of Notre Dame Football, written by Jack Cavanaugh back in 2011. So this particular anecdote comes from October 30th, 1920. Notre Dame is squaring off against Army, and Army's actually winning 17-14 as the players head into the locker room for halftime. So again, this is from Kavanaugh's book pages 150-151. to In the Notre Dame locker room, Rockney proceeded to give what Hunk Anderson would say many years later was one of his best halftime pep talks. Before a game, a Rockney pep talk often would include such rallying calls as, Go get him! Hit him and knock him down, then hit him again, then knock him down and make him stay down. At halftime, though, Rockney tended to be caustically critical of individual players whom he felt had either made crucial mistakes or were not going all out in their blocking and tackling, which to Rockney were far and away the most important aspects of football. As he spoke during halftime of the 1920 Army game, Rockney, still fuming from Gipp's pass from the Notre Dame goal line late in the half, spotted his star left halfback in the corner of the room puffing on a cigarette. And you there, Gip, he said in a voice dripping with sarcasm, I guess you don't have any interest in this game. To which Gip replied, Look, Rock, I've got 400 bucks bet on this game, and I'm not about to blow it, Gip replied, evoking laughter from his teammates and even a grin from Rockney. So Notre Dame would go on to win that game, 27-17, to thoroughly dominating the second half and George Gipp himself had a great second half, and yeah, he's a bit of a rascal. And probably not too much of a surprise, if you know much about him, that he was betting on the game. Uh, yeah, college football was a lot different back in 1920 um, than it is here in 2020, needless to say. But I just love the image of the kind of intense Rockney just giving out verbal tongue lashings to the guys and you got the kind of carefree Cavalier Gip just kind of leaned against the wall, minding his own business, smoking a cigarette, worried about his $400 that he has bet on the game. I think it's fantastic. And even better that he goes out there and just, you know, sticks it to Army in the second half. But um, I've got a lot of really cool episodes planned here for uh, the coming months. And hopefully you all had an opportunity to vote on the Facebook polls. If you haven't, please jump over to Facebook and just get on the page and vote uh, on the polls. I'm really trying to get a good gauge of what episodes you all really like to hear, whether they're kind of 
individual one-off episodes like this one, or if they're like more the interview episodes, like the ones I've done with Jim Augustine uh, of Augie's Locker Room and Jeff Harrell, or if you like the miniseries types, like um, you know, like this Notre Dame in the Civil War miniseries, which uh, was pretty eclectic for a football show, but I think it, I think you all enjoyed it. But uh, please. Please share any feedback that uh, you might have as far as what episode you like, because I'm, I'm absolutely listening. And send an email if you'd like, or the show a message. I'm always listening. And uh, while I try to pick topics that I don't know much about, that way I can kind of learn too, I do want to make sure that this is still interesting to you all. So please let me know. Um, so anyways, I guess that about does it for this episode. Again, thank you to the show's Consensus All-Americans, Brad G. of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Rob D. of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Your support is so greatly, greatly appreciated and honestly couldn't do it without you. So everybody stay healthy. Everybody stay well, please, and take all of the necessary precautions that are in place to protect yourselves, protect your loved ones. Uh, protect your, your fellow community members, whatever it might be. We'll see this through and we will emerge even stronger. So, um, yeah, and I know, you know, everyone's kind of been inconvenienced by this. You know, all the sports have been canceled. Yeah, obviously, the Blue and Gold game isn't been, has been canceled and they're even talking about possibly postponing or canceling the season opener in, opener, pardon me, in Dublin, Ireland. So, against Navy. But, you know, one thing that this endeavor has taught me, I'm a huge baseball fan, um, which probably obviously we spent half of this episode talking about Babe Ruth, but I'm a huge baseball fan. And, you know, I'm really disappointed that opening day has been moved and, you know, this season might not even get started until after Memorial Day, but, you know, it's for the greater good. And that's when you really kind of learn sports are awesome. Love sports. If you're listening, you probably love sports, but you know, they're secondary to life, and it's amazing how quickly you realize that once things kind of start happening. So, anywho, um, I guess that's it. I'm signing off. This has been Onward to Victory, and in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. Again, stay healthy, stay well, folks, and as always, go Irish.